This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Did you ever visit another part of the country and hear the locals talk and use words you really weren't sure what they were saying? Well, growing up, I can say that, you know, I have relatives in Pittsburgh and all the time I'd go there and visit them in the summer and then I'd come back using the term pop instead of soda or yins, you know, talking about you people. Yins was a big thing. It still is out there. The New York Times' Josh Katz has brought together uh, some of these in his new book, Speaking American, How Y'all Use and You Guys Talk. Josh is a graphics editor at the New York Times. It was a former Ph.D. student in statistics at North Carolina State University. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So what really got you, th- got you thinking about this as the topic for a book? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I can trace it all the way back to I grew up in South Jersey outside Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, in Philadelphia, it's a hoagie, not a sub. Right. Uh, Or a hero. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had friends from New York who called it a sub, and I was just really interested in this idea of where hoagies became subs and, you know, how does that happen? What are other lines like that around the country? And I remember just being very curious about that from really young age. And then uh, later on, eventually uh, coming across the Harvard Dialect Survey, uh, which inspired me to do another round of data collection on you know, similar ideas and uh, ultimately led to this book. Now, it, and for those people that don't know, that survey that Harvard did uh, a few years ago, that that kind of was a, a was kind of a, the same type of thing, correct? Looking at, at how people or why people say certain things in certain parts of the country. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, and so that was a survey that was done about 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, and then, which I wanted to kind of update and add some questions to and just do another round of data collection on. And so I put this quiz together, which you would answer about 25 questions on, like, whether you said soda, pop, or Coke, or hoagies versus subs. Um, And then at the end, you would get this map that said, well, here's where in the country people talk the most like you. And I got about 350,000 people to take this quiz, and uh, it was ultimately that data that led to the maps in the book. And, and that is the book. The book is basically a breakdown of different terms, different words, and, and maps of where these words really are used, uh, used more so than not, correct? Right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And along the way, and I sort of tried to use language um, just as a way into exploring uh, these ideas of the different regions of the country and some of the history behind the words and why people say the different things that they do. Also joining us, Naomi Barron, who is a professor of linguistics and executive director of the Center for Teaching, Research, and Learning at American University. Naomi, welcome in. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. This book that Josh has put together does kind of touch on something that I'm sure you have looked at quite often, and just why people say certain things in, in certain regions of the country and why in some parts of the country a specific word may be something totally different, like pop and soda. 
a whole range of reasons. I'll give you a quick list of answers. Why do they say the things they do? Because dialects have developed in different parts of the country in the United States, as they did in England. People from different parts of England came to different parts, particularly the East Coast originally, uh, seeding some of the differences in dialects. Uh, why do we use these differences? Why do we maintain these? A uh, whole rash of explanations, the most important of which is we grew up using language that way, and therefore it's natural to us. The second is we like it because it helps us identify with a particular part of the country or a particular group of people. So we maintain certain words, even if other people say, boy, do you sound weird, because you want to say, I say tonic, I do not say soda, I do not say pop, I do not say Coke, I say tonic, because my family was from Boston for many generations back, take that. Well, I guess it's interesting that there is this historic element to it, and the fact that uh, you know, these 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 regionalisms really do hang in as you cross generation to generation. It, it's almost being passed down uh, by parent to child. Language is one of those things we really do learn at whether it's mother's or father's knee. And if there's no particular reason to change the way you speak, you don't. However, there are often reasons to change. Teaching in a university setting in Washington, D.C., uh, we have students coming from all over the country, and one of the first things they do, including when they come from Pittsburgh, <laughs> is to say, yipes, do I stick out if <laughs> I say yins, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try to learn to speak the way they do in Washington, whatever the heck that might mean. So you can see people decide consciously to at least temporarily abandon certain of the ways they grew up speaking, they abandon other things as well. Although, interestingly, when they go home for vacations, they often go back to it because it's comfort food. It's, uh, it's the way that I'm used to speaking. Well, Josh, you being from the Philadelphia area, you probably are, are well, uh, well versed on uh, how the, the Philadelphia accent, in fact, uh, Dion, our, our uh, sound engineer, was talking about how the Philadelphia accent and the, and the New York accent and, and how people phrase things, it, 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 to a degree, it, it kind of rubs people from one city against the other, other city. Yeah, uh, that's kind of interesting. And you see that a lot in northeastern cities. People have yeah, there's much more kind of distinctive dialect clusters in the Northeast than compared to the ones that you see out West. Um, so, for example, like Pittsburgh versus Philadelphia versus New York, really each have their own very distinct manner of speaking, uh, which is really interesting. So what is it like then out West compared to, as you said, the, the, the East Coast? So, I mean, a lot of people's dialect and accent has to do with migration. Uh, so, you know, all of the English speaking started on kind of the eastern coast of um, America and then kind of spread west from there. And people took their accents with them, but then also everyone kind of spread out. So you'll see things as you move westward, everything spreads out and kind of blends together somewhat. Um, but it's still city to city and region to region, you can still find distinctions between the different places. So, Naomi, does that mean that, that Florida may be the true melting pot since you have so <laughs> many people from, from so many East Coast cities uh, that are making their way down to Florida once they get towards retirement age? 
Well, I'm going to call it the buffet line as opposed to the melting pot. Okay. Because people often uh, cluster with, even when they have retired or moved to another area, uh, people who are like them. So there are places in Florida where you think you're in Brooklyn or Manhattan or the Bronx because people have not lost their New York accent. Why should they? Because it served them in good stead all those years, and they keep speaking the same way. California is a beautiful example where it's not a melting pot. There's no, and, and Josh, correct me if you, if you think I'm wrong here, um, there's not a California accent, we'll put Valley Girls Speak aside, because right. people have come from so many different places. Just as these days there's no Washington, D.C. accent because people have come from so, so many places. But one thing I wanted to, to comment on, which I know Josh did some nice research on it, on um, whether you're talking about uh, a knife named after Jim Bowie or it's Bowie, well, I happen to live near Bowie, Maryland. So uh, I have a real dog in this fight, and so do the people who live there because place names to people who live in a place can be very important, and it's a way of saying, I know what I'm talking about, and you outsider don't. I went to school in a town called Waltham, Massachusetts, that before I went to, I assumed was Waltham. And then Mm. I got there and I realized, boy, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb unless you learn to speak the way the natives do and to respect a name, because place names as well as personal names are very personal. Josh? Uh, Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you see with a lot of place names, um, there's Texas, New Haven, the way that people from New Haven pronounce the city, mm-hmm. and then the way the people from the state of Texas pronounce the state uh, is often different than outsiders would, well, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, Although well, I should say one thing with the most of the words in the book, or most of the focus in the book, is less on pronunciation and more on word choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the reason for that is because uh, you know, the book the data in the book really comes from this survey where people are judging for themselves how they sound, and oftentimes we're not the best judges of that. So I found the word choice data to be a little bit uh, more reliable than some of the pronunciation data. Well, where what are some of the, the more unique ones, unique terms that, that you've come across uh, in terms of of use. I, I saw that uh, one was sneakers versus tennis shoes, uh, where sneakers, I guess, is kind of a more of a northeast thing compared to uh, to, to the rest of the country. Yeah, which uh, was interesting to me, um, at least because I think because a lot of national media, uh, if you just go on what you hear in movies and television, you'll probably come away with the idea that everyone says sneakers. When in reality, it's actually the majority of the country is going to say tennis shoes, um, which I found really interesting. But there's another interesting point here. Uh, A couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, uh, you remember Keds, whether you want to call them sneakers or Oh, yeah, yeah. They came back, uh, and suddenly everybody had to be, you know, of, of high school, college age, had to have a pair. And because Keds were called sneakers, not tennis shoes, 
or maybe I'm in the Northeast, or I'm in, in mid-Atlantic states. Um, but I, I always associated kids with the word sneakers. I'm wondering if that uh, contributed at all to the data at the time they were collected because of that fad. And now they're all called running shoes, whether you run in them or not. Well, I'll, th- I'll throw one in that, that, that I didn't realize the first time somebody brought up the term, Josh, they brought up the term grinder to me. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I was used to hoagies or, you know, you would have a, a meatball parm that would be, you know, baked a little bit. I never did. I think it was about 22 or 23 it was the first time I really got into what was a grinder. Yeah, right. So you, you'll hear that most commonly in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and uh, parts of western Massachusetts. Uh, but, yeah. What about some of the other ones? Like uh, uh, compared to a, a water fountain, which a lot of people uh, say, uh, there's also a term I guess you used in in Wisconsin and maybe a couple other places called a bubbler. Yeah, so you hear that in Wisconsin and then also in Rhode Island and parts of Massachusetts, and the, you know these two wholly distinct places. And uh, I tried, you know, I tried to research what exactly the origins of that word were and why these two different regions adopted it. And I read a lot of theories and ultimately couldn't find any that was really conclusive uh, one way or another. Is it more, are more of these geared toward, towards food in, in the research that you did, Josh? <laughs> That's a funny question. You definitely find a lot that have to deal with food, and I think a lot of that has to do with because a lot of these dialects are tied up with people's identities and you know the places where they come from and each region has their own kind of distinctive foods um but yeah well i would think that probably a lot of people that that are outside of the philadelphia and naomi i'll I'll ask you do you know what wawa is of course because Uh, i spent time in philadelphia okay all right (laughs) otherwise i'd say you go into a store called what? I, that, that, which was my first response when I saw my first Wawa. Um, but going back to the food issue, it's really interesting to watch um, the wide divergence of terms that remain localized. Uh, I remember when I first went to school in California and somebody said, oh, would you like to try a French dip? And I right, thought, right. is this a kind of swimming? Do you have clothes on? Right. Uh, and then I actually just did a little research on where it came from, and there seems to be a fight. There are two restaurants in Los Angeles that claim to have invented it. Um, but that's not something, to my knowledge, that's really made it to the East Coast. But it's commonly used. Well, the other one, Josh, that that, that uh, I came upon when uh, you know I, I started dating somebody many years ago from New Hampshire, from New England, was was the fact that the traffic circle, which you well know from from your time in New Jersey, uh, is called a rotary up and up in New England. And every I first time I heard that, I was like, "What? What are you saying?" <laughs> yeah, and actually, that one is really interesting because that was. Uh, one of the examples in the book where you're actually able to see uh, the usage of that word change over time, whereas uh, back in the 40s and 50s, the area of the country that called it a traffic circle was much more widespread, and now uh, roundabout has really spread uh, throughout the entire country almost, and you really only have um, Massachusetts and Maine that are left calling it uh, rotary. And then scattered pockets um, in the Northeast and South Jersey will call it a traffic circle. In South Jersey, it's just a circle. 
Well, and now you really don't even have that problem anymore since they took all the circles out in South Jersey, pretty much. <laughs> Well, one of the other areas that that you also focus on this book is about, uh, speaking of highways, uh, are highways and and how they are called or referred to in various portions of the country. Yeah, and I mean, one interesting thing about that is you can really see um, with some of the examples, the state lines really show up as to where people say different things, because a lot of it has to do with signage. So, like, the signs in that state will refer to things using a certain word. Right. Uh, so then the people from that state do, too. What, so it's sort of a feedback loop. Yeah, and, and Naomi, I mean, th- these are these are things that, as I said before, have some history to them and some balance to them. But is there is there a significant adjustment in, in these terms and, and words as, as we go through time uh, with people from, uh, from other, you know, other parts of the country moving into areas? Uh, I think you just uh, asked a really important question about, so why the heck is are the dialect maps not as clean as one would have anticipated they are? People move from place to place. That's number one. Um, number two, uh, a new word can come in, because this happens with slang all the time. It's not a dialect issue. It's a slang issue, uh, where one person uses it maybe on a television program, maybe these days in social media, and suddenly it's picked up upon. So uh, you may be taking just one word or a couple of words from a particular dialect, and then it sounds as if people in the area you've moved to or where people picked up from mass media, uh, they are sounding as if they're from this other place, but of course they're not. So I think roundabout might be a good example. Uh, Bubbler might be a good example. I'm wondering who that person is, uh, like Typhoid Mary, who moved from Rhode Island to Wisconsin. And I've said Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, trying to sound as if I belong in the state. Um, But that had to be a case of borrowing. I mean, that's my linguist's hypothesis. Similarly with roundabout, well, that's what they are in the U.K. Yeah. And I'm guessing there was a lot of influence, not that everybody went to England, but from the U.K., maybe from television, I don't know. The other thing is we pick up individual words, not necessarily thinking um, that it's a dialectal piece, but it, it pervades our usage. So I take my own speech. I use the word towards rather than toward. I put an S on the end. Yeah. I know that's British. It's not American. I have done it at least for, you know, I won't say how many decades. Um, do I speak British English? Do I try to sound as if I'm from London? No. But that's one piece I picked up from somewhere. I don't even know where or when, but it has become a piece of my language. And that's the kind of thing that happens in language all the time. We pick up a piece. We're not always conscious. It's not from our local region, right. but it becomes part of our language. Is this, even though this is something that is a, a spoken uh, topic, uh, how much of an impact could we see, and maybe you see it even even today already, uh, the impact from social media and, and people using social media, obviously, and, and it goes across boundaries. It doesn't really, you know, no state lines for the most part. Um, I, I do a lot of work on social media, just as I do on other kinds of so-called computer-mediated computer communication. And interestingly, it's not having as much an impact as we might think, because there's such diversity. You tend, you know, there's a term in the, um, in the communication business of 
a filter bubble. We listen yeah. to the things that are said by the people who are like us and say things that are the kinds of things we ourselves would say. So we tend to see the things that are already part of our language rather than picking up a lot from someone else. What we pick up is a tone. So just to go to politics briefly, um, there's a tone on Twitter that's um, a lot rougher in many ways, a lot more in-your-face than it was uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's that sort of thing that I think is more going viral than particular pieces of language because of social media. Josh, how about you? Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Well, about the impact of social media how, that, that it could or could not have on these types of, uh, of uses of, uh, of verbiage uh, across the United States. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I would pretty much agree exactly with what Naomi said. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing it can do is it has the potential, at least, to allow for a more rapid spread of kind of new dialect features than you might otherwise see. Um, but that's really just a, a potential, whether or not that actually happens. Uh, you know, we'll have to see. Do you have the uh, the next uh, round of words and phrases ready to go for a for a follow up book on this? Because I would <laughs> yeah, think this funny, is, I, I would actually, think this is an endless topic here. It's one of those things that once I started, uh, I published the first round of maps a couple years ago, and then the quiz shortly after that, and people immediately started emailing me. Uh, suggestions for things to include in the next round. So I'll have to get to work. And if, for people that would like, they can still take the quiz on the New York Times website uh, because it, because it's still up. Where can they find it? Yeah, uh, so if you just go to the Times website and search for Dialect Quiz, it should come right up. Great to have you both on the show. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Naomi. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.